everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Well, I'm actually pretty uncomfortable. It is hotter than a habanero shart and nearly as unpleasant right now. It's around 100 degrees and we don't have air conditioning, so I can't sleep and my brain isn't working. I went to pour myself a cup of coffee this morning and had drunk half the cup before I realized, wait a minute, this isn't coffee. This is a cup of live bees. Now, why we even had a carafe of bees in my kitchen, I couldn't begin to tell you. But I will say this, it did perk me up. And while I wouldn't necessarily recommend bees as a coffee substitute, you had enough cream and sugar, it's it's not that bad. Better than Sanka. Sanka is a thing my grandpa used to drink, and I don't really know what it is. All right, that's enough of me saying words I don't really understand in an order that doesn't make a ton of sense. At least for the intro, there'll be plenty more of that to come in the episode. So let's get into it, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. No, sir, novelty fashions allowed. I shall keep this show fopless. I want an affectless summary. A truly Spartan synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 25, November 1986. Hell is the Hybrid, Part 2. Written by Marf Wolfman, drotted by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marf Wolfman and Mike Gold. Teen Titan Roll Call, Cyborg! Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, Jericho, The Flash, the Wally West one, and Aqualad. Hooray! Previously in the New Teen Titans, Beast Boy, a.k.a. Garfield Logan, and his stepfather, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, have always had a somewhat contentious relationship. Despite their occasional acrimony, Steve had been Gar's only legal guardian who had neither died nor tried to murder his young ward, which had earned the billionaire a special place in the shape-shifting teen's heart. Unfortunately, things took a turn for the worse when Steve developed a debilitating addiction to wearing a reality-warping magic hat, which he called the Mento Helmet, and I call the Fresh Maker. Repeated hat use weakened Steve's already tenuous grasp on reality, and the perturbed plutocrat began to blame his stepson Gar for the death of his wife Rita and the rest of her teammates on Doom Patrol. Going full Freshmaker, Steve donned a fancy blue suit adorned with lightning bolts and attempted to murder Beast Boy and his titanic teammates. When this murder attempt proved unsuccessful, Gar's financially fortunate father figure retreated into the sewer and blew up some rats with his mind. There, he was recruited by a rakish English archmage, whose name is apparently pronounced John Constantine, to use his fresh-making powers to save the world. 
While Constantine and his companions were ultimately successful, during their campaign, Steve was exposed to cosmic horror that further fractured his already fragile mind, and also apparently left the beleaguered billionaire without the use of his legs. This trauma did nothing to deter the manic multi-billionaire from his intention to slaughter his superheroic stepson. Between largely incoherent soliloquies about how sane he definitely was, the fresh-making fanatic began assembling a team of super-powered subordinates he called the Hybrid. His first recruits were a pair of Greek archaeologists named Adonis and Angelica Ball, who had been excavating the recently unearthed tomb of the mythological being Medusa. Adonis had triggered the tomb's defenses and the couple was rendered comatose by some mystical whatnot. Steve had their bodies delivered to his labs, and, using a combination of his Freshmaker powers and an experimental nonsense metal with ill-defined plot-determined properties, he revived and transformed them. Adonis became Gorgon, who had snakes for hair, puckered gray buttholes for eyes, and could turn anyone he looked at into stone. Angelica became Harpy with an eye, who had wings, shot lasers out of her eyes, and wore a structurally unsound metal bikini. Then Steve found an Israeli commando who had recently fallen out of an airplane and turned him into Pterodon, an enormous humanoid pterodactyl wearing a metal diaper. The hybrid weren't thrilled with the changes Steve had made to them. But luckily for Steve, having a reality-warping magic hat means never having to say you're sorry. Steve used his fresh-making powers to mentally subjugate his new team, informing them that their first assignment would be killing Beast Boy and his teammates. Speaking of our titular teenage team... The Titans had gone through some changes of their own lately. Starfire was off in space dealing with some family drama, and Nightwing and Raven had been kidnapped by an evil cult. So Wonder Girl called in some old pals to help fill out the team roster, namely Wally West and Aqualad. Hooray! Wally had just taken up the mantle of the all-grown-up Flash after the death of his mentor Barry Allen. Aqualad was also mourning the loss of a loved one. Since the death of his girlfriend Tula, the aquatic adolescent had been displaying a previously uncharacteristic, sea-strengthened sense of nihilism. Despite this atypical apathy, Aqualad agreed to accompany the rest of the Titans on their mission to find Steve. The sextet of super teens hopped into the T-Jet and took to the skies, but before long they found themselves under attack by Pterodon, who, at Steve's behest, tore the tail from the Titans' jet. Gar jumped out and managed to subdue the gang's aerial assailant, but the damage had been done. The T-Jet plummeted, crashing into the murky water of the Hudson River. Gadzooks! Who will save our soggy superheroes from their watery tomb? After turning the initial members of his new team into flying dinosaurs and mythological monsters, what fantastical creature will be the inspiration for the next member of the hybrid? And, given his new status as a sullen, apathetic teenager, will Aqualad figure out a way to smoke clove cigarettes underwater? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, Aqualad, obviously. A sumo wrestler. And, we don't see it on page, but if anyone can, it's him. The Titan's jet crashes and quickly sinks to the bottom of the river. Nearly all of the Titans are either knocked unconscious, trapped under debris, or some combination of the two. Things are looking pretty grim for our heroes, but not to fear. The greatest of all Teen Titans is on the scene, and literally in his element. As soon as he regains consciousness, Aqualad frees himself, looks around at his fallen teammates, and swims to the surface. Wow, 
He's really taking this new apathy thing pretty seriously. Oh, never mind. He just swims to the surface so that he can fill his lungs with air and then swim back down to breathe life-giving oxygen into Cyborg's mouth. Hooray! Then he summons a pod of whales to swim over and raise the submerged plane to the surface. Hooray! So, Cyborg gets to enter into his diary that he woke up to feel Aqualad's lips on his, and then he got to go for a whale ride. Best day ever? I mean, sure, he almost drowned and got attacked by a dinosaur in a diaper, but still. Back at the Titan's T-shaped skyscraper, Beast Boy has Pterodon tied to a chair and is questioning the defeated Dino Man. Both participants in this Q&A session seem oddly congenial, given that, as far as they know, Pterodon has just killed all of Gar's teammates. I guess maybe being the only surviving member of your superhero team is the sort of thing that has diminishing returns, and Gar's just like, yeah, been there, done that. Pterodon apologizes for his actions, but says that he had no choice, as he was being controlled by Steve at the time. Just then, the rest of the gang shows up, still damp from their crash landing and subsequent whale ride. Beast Boy is so stoked that his pals are less dead than previous evidence would suggest that he doesn't even seem to be upset that he missed out on seeing Aqualad in action. Good for him. Meanwhile, in Steve Dayton's secret lab, Steve is decked out in his Freshmaker hat. In fact, that's pretty much always the case these days, so I'm going to go ahead and start using Steve and Freshmaker more or less interchangeably. Which is to say that I'm going to continue doing that and pretend that it's something that I just started to do. Anyway, the Freshmaker yells at Gorgon and Harpy with an eye and tells them to go grab Pterodon from the Titans and bring him back to the lab. Then he turns his attention back to tinkering with the newest and thus far first volunteer member of the hybrid. Taro Raiden is a nine-foot-tall sumo wrestler. But Steve is intent on using his nonsense metal and magic hat powers to transform him into something far more powerful. A nine-foot-tall sumo wrestler with a distinctive haircut. Back at the Titan Tower, our heroes question their prisoner. Pterodon reveals the startling information that Steve seems a little loopy lately. You don't say. While our heroes are still reeling from this shocking news, an alarm notifies them that someone has breached the tower's perimeter. Wally heads out on the balcony to investigate, and is ambushed by Harpy with an eye, who swoops in and knocks all grown-up Flash off the building. Whoops! Luckily, Beast Boy is there to make the save, turning into a giant eagle and snatching his tumbling teammate out of the air mere seconds before he hits the ground. The rest of the gang leaps into action and attacks Harpy with an eye. The mythologically-based menace holds her own, but eventually the Titans triumph and Wonder Girl subdues the team's flying foe. During the fight, Jericho sensed that something about the attack seemed a little bit off. He rushes inside to check on Pterodon and finds that Gorgon has broken in and is about to free the Cretaceous captive. A scuffle ensues, and Flash and Beast Boy rush in to lend a hand. During the fight, Gorgon uses his powers to turn the Flash into stone, but Gar turns into a rhino and takes out his butthole-eyed adversary. Hooray! A few minutes later, the Titans reconvene in their conference room. They stuff a pillowcase over Gorgon's head and blindfold Harpy with an eye to neutralize their respective powers, then begin questioning their hybrid hostages. After informing their captors that Gorgon's power should wear off Wally in a few hours, the newcomers echo their pterodactyl teammate's sentiment 
and say that they too are unwilling pawns of the Freshmaker and bear the Titans no animosity. Pterodon is about to reveal the location of Dayton's hideout when he starts freaking out and smashes his bonds. Turns out, the Freshmaker is flexing his mental muscles and remote controlling his psychically subjugated subordinates from afar. Bummer. Apologizing profusely as he does so, Pterodon frees his reluctant teammates. Jericho tries to use his creepy-ass powers on Gorgon, but an unseen force rebuffs the attempt and sends the mutton-chopped Marvel reeling. In the ensuing struggle, Beast Boy gets turned into stone, and the members of the hybrid make their escape. Pterodon grabs Gorgon and carries him back to Steve's secret lab, but as Harpy with an eye launches herself out the window to follow, Aqualad leaps on her back. Harpy with an eye flies off in pursuit of her teammates, but with a tenacity reminiscent of a TV cop hanging onto the hood of a car, Aqualad refuses to let go. He delivers a little speech about how he's tired of being apathetic and sullen, and Tula would want him to get out there and live. And I guess by live, he means that she would want him to get a piggyback ride from an uncooperative, mind-controlled flying archaeologist? Well, Tula first showed up in a Bob Haney written title, so there's actually a pretty good chance that she may have said something pretty similar to that. Carry on. Harpy with an eye has no choice but to carry her determined stowaway back to the Freshmaker's lair. Seeing as they were unencumbered by hop-ons, Gorgon and Pterodon beat Harpy with an eye to their destination. They're greeted by Steve and his newest creation. Taro Raiden, the nine-foot-tall sumo wrestler, has completed his transformation and is now Behemoth, the nine-foot-tall sumo wrestler with a topknot and a silly outfit. At Steve's request, Behemoth beats the absolute shit out of Pterodon and Gorgon to punish them for cooperating with the Titans to the extent that they did. Behemoth is very strong, very fast, and kind of a jerk. He and Steve seem to get along pretty well. Then the Freshmaker notices that Harpy with an eye is approaching. When he sees that she has Aqualad with her, he gets super stoked, which makes sense. I mean... He may be a maniacal industrialist who is driven mad by a magic hat addiction and is fixated on the idea of murdering his stepson, but he's still human. Everybody loves Aqualad! While well, Steve is eagerly anticipating the arrival of the world's greatest house guest, Jericho takes Donna, Vic, and Gar to his mom Adeline Kane's palatial countryside estate to see if she can help them track Steve down. As a butler serves them tea, Adeline's pal Amber informs our heroes that she has been searching financial records to try to figure out Dayton's whereabouts, and thinks that she has a pretty solid lead. It seems that pretty recently someone rented out an industrial facility in the name of Steve's dead wife, Rita Farr. Adeline offers to send some of her operatives out in a helicopter to scope out the location. The Titans gratefully accept the offer. Unfortunately for both our titular teens and Addy's operatives, the Freshmaker's abilities have been increasing, as has his paranoia. Steve soon spots the helicopter hovering nearby his base. Although to be fair, a helicopter isn't a particularly stealthy vehicle. Steve sends out Harpy with an eye, with some very specific instructions. She is to attack the chopper, but to make sure that it escapes. Apparently, the Freshmaker has a plan to lead the Titans into a trap. Oh no! A plan and a trap? But those are the Titans' two biggest weaknesses. Back at the Kane estate, Addie relays the helicopter's report to her guests. Donna tells the team to get ready, but Cyborg is like, Hold on a second. I know this sounds crazy, but 
what if, and just hear me out on this, what if we didn't just rush in with no idea what we were going to do? Maybe we could, I don't know, talk this over first? Also, Wally and Gar are still statued up, so we should probably wait for them to thaw out before we leave. Wait a minute, they are? But Gar was sitting there with you guys while you were drinking tea, and that couldn't have been a statue form because he was a lion or something when he got turned to stone. Was, was that an inflatable Gar or something? Like, do you keep that thing around in case you need to use the carpool lane? I'm going to give you guys the benefit of the doubt and say that's what it's for, but why would you make the butler serve it tea? That is just weird. Man, rich people. Anyway, Donna tells Cyborg not to worry, because she has a plan. She does? Wow. I honestly can't remember the last time the Titans had one of those. To be continued. Wait. Is Donna's plan just to walk right into the trap? Because if it is, then I take it back. The Titans use a plan all the time. Or maybe her plan is to throw the inflatable gar at Steve. I can see that working. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it is going pretty great. How are you going? Oh, I'm I'm going okay. It was, as you will remember, Lisa's birthday last week, and you brought us a delicious pie, and some other people brought us a delicious cake, and someone else brought us a delicious coffee cake. Oh. So it's been a week of eating pretty much exclusively pie and cake. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah, you know when you're a kid and you think, oh man, when I grow up, I'm just going to eat cake every day for every meal. Well, what they don't tell you about that when you're a kid is, it's fucking awesome! <laughs> uh, yeah, cake's delicious! <laughs> it is delicious, but I don't know. Maybe it's like a middle-aged thing, but if I eat too much dessert stuff, I have no energy. Oh, no, there's that, too. But also, luckily, there's a pandemic, so I can't go anywhere. So, you know, it all just works out really, really well. You could just, like, lay on the couch and eat cake. Uh, could? Or have? Done. <laughs> Next. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that I did do this week is read this comic book. Me, too. Cool. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? You know, for one where, I guess plot-wise, so little happens, I had a great time reading it. I had a really similar reaction. It was an extended fight scene that was just kind of a prelude to a bigger fight. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you'd see in like an episode of some anime TV shows. But I really enjoyed it. Maybe it was where I was at mentally, but it was uh, light and kind of refreshing, and I thought it was pretty fun. It was refreshing, too, in the sense that there was a lot of, you know, kind of the little bit more of the goofy joking relationship elements of it interspersed with all the violence, which, I mean, that's kind of common for this book, but I don't know. It was nice to see that done in a way that didn't make me cringe as much as usual. Right. No, I, I agree. The jokes were actually kind of funny in some instances, which is frankly a bit of a rarity. 
And I don't know, there wasn't a lot of just like really overwrought drama. I don't feel like the stakes got lowered by the banter in any way. It's still like, this is a big deal fight. We still have the pre-existing relationship between Beast Boy and Mento. But uh, yeah, it was fun. Indeed. Though there was one joke that's come up at least once before that I think you and I never really made sense of, which is the joke about how getting shot gives you internal air conditioning. Has that come up before? I feel like this is not the first time we've talked about it. Huh. Yeah, that was a weird little joke that Beast Boy made to The Flash, who, this may come up later, but didn't have a particularly strong showing as a team member in this issue, but didn't display some of the more glaring personality flaws that we're used to seeing from Wally, so that was nice. Mm -hmm. I guess Harpy has... I'm sorry. I guess Harpy with an eye has some kind of eye beams that she shoots that are, unlike her pal Gorgons, don't turn people to stone, but I guess are just like laser blasts. Mm -hmm. And Beast Boy saves Wally from getting shot in the tummy and and makes a crack along the lines of, oh, I thought you'd enjoy having some internal air conditioning. Yep. this I'm pretty sure this has come up before as a stupid joke. Okay. About getting shot. Fair enough. I think it might make more sense if it was Cyborg, seeing as he's, like, part robot, so has, like, metallic parts in his tummy and stuff. But you're right, it doesn't quite land with Wally. Also, on that note, one interesting thing that I learned that I didn't know is if I'm ever in a situation where somebody is shooting laser beams out of their eyes or turning people to stone with beams out of their eyes, all you need to do is put, a like, a pillowcase or a bandana over their eyes and problem solved. Right. I think this does play into the larger theme of the issue, which is one that I can appreciate and definitely has come up before. If this issue was a PSA, I think largely it would be about the dangers of making eye contact with anyone ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, accurate. And also, you know, just a general good practice if you don't want to engage with strangers out in public. I can get behind that. No, absolutely. It, it is a message that our uh, our New England upbringing reinforced <laughs> to us at every level. Yeah, don't engage. Right. I mean, a while ago, somebody asked me what color my dad's eyes were, and I had to tell them, how the fuck would I know? I never tried to fight my dad. So, yeah, like we said, it seems to focus pretty directly on a fight scene for the majority of the issue, or rather several fight scenes that are kind of interrupted but strung together, rather than flit back and forth between all of the storylines that Wolfman's established leading up to this. And it was kind of nice to get a break from some of that. I am interested, of course, at some point in revisiting the uh, the seeds that have been planted for the other storylines involving Starfire and Nightwing and Raven. But I appreciated the focus of this issue, and I was curious if that may have been because we see in the credits, rather than just being edited by Marv Wolfman, there is a editorial assist by a guy named Mike Gold, who is a consulting editor. I hope that is a trend that continues. I feel like it's a bad idea for a writer to edit their own book in general. I know it's something that happens a lot and is sometimes viewed as a reward for a writer who has 
high sales or a senior position in the company. But I don't think there's a downside to having a good editor look over your work. And I feel like this title has in the past suffered from not having a stronger editorial voice. Yeah, it's funny that assistant editor role sounds like something that would be almost punitive. Yeah. To the primary editor. Like, well, we gave you a little bit too much leash last time, so I'm going to reel that in a bit, which I appreciated. No, I, th- I think it needs it. And I don't think it was probably established in a punitive way. Honestly, I don't know how much of an assist Mike Gold had. I know he was new at DC Comics at the time. He had come over from First Comics. And I don't know to what extent he got his hand on the ball, but I feel like in general, not just with comic book writers, but with all writers, you really benefit from having a good editor. And the more popular you get, I think the less likely you are to necessarily tolerate editorial oversight, Mm -hmm. which I think is unfortunate. And I think you see that in like a lot of different fields, like with actors, once they get really popular. They're less likely to take notes from their directors. And so you get like 90s Pacino. And I see it happen a lot with comedians, I feel like, where once they achieve a certain level of popularity, it's not necessarily editors, but the feedback that they get from audience becomes kind of self-fulfilling. So like anything they say starts getting laughs. So they lose the vetting process of figuring out what's actually funny. Mm -hmm. I feel like becoming your own editor in comics can be the equivalent of that. Yeah, totally. What did you think of the cover of this issue? Um, there was a lot going on. It was pretty dynamic. It's hard not to notice Wonder Girl's butt. That's like very much like made to be a focal point of the cover. And it reminded me of that. Was it the Defenders? Or I can't remember which, which group it was where somebody did that funny thing where they said, what if we painted the guys like the way that girls are painted and all their, their butts and stuff are sticking out? Have you seen that one? I've seen a few different versions of that over the years, but I don't know if I've seen the one you're talking about. Oh, it's pretty funny. I think it's Thor and Hulk and some others are all like sort of positioned the way that the, the male gaze often puts the female characters. And it makes you realize how silly that can be. Yeah, I know a lot of artists do have that tendency to put their women characters in that kind of chiropractic nightmare, like mid-torso exorcist pose, where somehow both their chest and butt are facing the same direction. That's not going on with Wonder Woman in this, but you're right, it does definitely put a focus on her butt. I will say, in general, I am a huge fan of Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who does this cover. I think this is one of the weaker of the new Teen Titans Volume 2 covers that we've seen. It's kind of standard comic book fight cover. It's also misleading in, I think, a couple of ways. First of all, Starfire's there, blasting grown-up Batboy, like, right in the butt. Um, And she doesn't appear in this issue. And also it has the Freshmaker dynamically rolling into battle in his wheelchair, which is something that definitely doesn't happen in this issue. It's weird that it feels the need to put a character who has, like, thought-based powers in a physically dramatic action pose that just kind of doesn't suit him. Mm -hmm. I gotta say, though, I love the way that Gorgon is drawn running, because it looks like he's punching the air with every step that he (laughs) takes, which is a hilarious way to run, I think. 
I think Mentos might be making him do that, you know? That's probably true. That seems like something he would do. He is, I gotta say, continuing to have fun with his newfound magic hat-induced mental instability. Very scenery-chewing, in a way that is kind of fun, but is also pretty reductive. It's not like we knew a ton about Steve Dayton before he was overwhelmed by whatever cosmic powers merged with his magic hat addiction, but there's really no personality of his left other than the uh, capital M madness that he now has. And although it is kind of fun, it, it would be kind of nice to, I don't know, see a little bit more of him rather than just his madness. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that that newfound space madness manifests itself is his creation of a new hybrid character. What are your thoughts on Behemoth? Um, I liked his original name. Yeah, that was a uh, Taro Raiden, right? Yep, sounded kind of like video game character guy because of the Raiden bit. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I think my note was uh, Dayton makes a giant sumo goon. Yep, and that is actually the character's backstory as well as that he used to be a sumo wrestler. So, uh, yeah, kind of a reductive Japanese caricature, which is pretty indicative of the time when this comic book came out. If there wasn't such a clear choice for me for my other timestamp, I might consider it one of those, because by the mid to late 80s, you did see a lot of depictions in. American pop culture of Japanese being portrayed as the invading bad guy, I think in large parts because they were starting to be considered an economic threat to uh, to American industries. And so this issue actually came out, I think, not that long after. I don't know if you've ever read geriatric gangrene jujitsu gerbils, but uh, a little <laughs> while ago... Enemies of the show, Ed and Gary. Ugh, those two. They, uh, they did an episode of Loosen Up the Offense in which they read uh, Geriatric Gangrene Jiu-Jitsu Gerbils number one. And the main enemy from that story was a character called Samurai Sam, who has a remarkably similar character design to Behemoth. I knew I had seen that top knot somewhere before. Yeah. I gotta say, overall, Taro gets off pretty easy in the transformation process compared to the rest of the people in the hybrid. Hey, he doesn't seem to mind it too much. Well, I think maybe the rest of the hybrid wouldn't mind it so much either if the entirety of their new looks had been a haircut and a mustache. Like... Behemoth looks pretty much exactly the way he did at the beginning of the transformation process. He's a big guy, and then I guess the Freshmaker was just like, uh, I want him to have a top knot, and uh, let's put a mustache on him. Transformation complete. I can see Gorgon like looking at that guy with his eyeballs that were now puckered gray buttholes and being like, uh, seriously? Yeah, that's true. I mean... He removed his neck. He didn't have much of a neck to start with, but he's got zero neck now. I thought that was just an unflattering costume. For the most part, like he like started off as a 
nine or ten foot sumo wrestler and ended up as a nine or ten foot sumo wrestler and seems, yeah, pretty stoked about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned liking his name before. I actually looked up the name Taro and it uh, its translation is either firstborn or big boy. Oh, really? <laughs> Which pretty appropriate. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is hilarious. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's something to be said for name meanings. I mean, my own means, uh, obviously, gift from God. Whereas mine means he who lives by a seething pool. Ooh, really? I did Google it once, and that was <laughs> that was one of the results. I was like, what? Is that, was that like a common thing back in the day? Apparently. Uh, yeah, I always just thought that it meant one who might star or co-star in The Lost Boys. So, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I guess between that and hot tub enthusiast, uh, take your pick. Yeah, both uh, pretty weird. Yeah, although, yeah, like I said, it's got to be frustrating for Pterodon to just be saying, wait, 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 you turned me into a giant fucking pterodactyl wearing a diaper and this guy gets a fucking mustache? Yeah, no kidding. That is rough. So, yeah, a little inconsistent behavior on Mentos's part. It does kind of come across as an example of everyone else gets a transformation based on their personality or the activities that they were engaged in recently. And the one non-white character gets a transformation based on his ethnicity. Like, oh, you're Japanese, so you're a sumo. Done. Mm. So, not great in that regard. Yeah, yeah, not great. I guess the reason Pterodon got his particular get-up is because he was falling out of a plane when he died? Yeah, you know, like a pterodactyl's always fallen out of a plane. Oh, sure. They can't stand him. Yeah, and they probably put him in a diaper because when you fall out of a plane, you shit yourself. So, you know, it all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very scary to fall out of an airplane, if you're a pterodactyl especially. Yeah, I, th- I think no matter who you are, falling out of an airplane, not, not pleasant. Not an experience I want to have. You've jumped out of a plane, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Not a, not an experience I particularly enjoyed, I gotta say. I, I think I might have talked about it on the show before. Pretty soon after I first started bartending, I had a summer where I was drinking pretty heavily and would make promises when I was drunk that then I would wake up sober and just be like, oh, I'm doing this? Hmm. The two examples that stand out the most would be skydiving uh, for a friend's birthday, despite the fact that I am not crazy about heights, and coaching a Little League team despite having never played baseball. I remember you doing both of those things, and I was amused. Yeah, the uh, the skydiving experience, the, the part that I think was most noteworthy to me was I had a lot of difficulty after jumping closing my mouth because once you open it you're just getting air rushing into it Mm. which was a problem because for your first jump they insist that or at at the place that we went from they insisted that it be a tandem jump so i've got the guy who's in charge of the parachute and determining whether i get to come along with the parachute part of the jumping out of a plane ride is getting my saliva just smacked into his face Uh, because I can't close my mouth. At least that's what I imagined happening. I couldn't really turn around to look. So that wasn't ideal. It was very scary making the ascent. And then for me, at least once you jump out of the plane, 
there's a few minutes of calm where it's just like, well, nothing I can do now. And then once the parachute got deployed and you're being suspended by your shoulders and lowered to the ground slowly, it started getting scary for me again. Mm-hmm. So that was my skydiving experience. Uh, although, unlike Pterodon, I don't think I did need a diaper. Well, that's good. Yeah. Nice to see Adeline Kane again. Yep. Still still blazing spliffs. I thought this one looked more like a cigarette. No? I mean, I just think that's because she's become a more accomplished uh, roller. Like, if you go to page 26. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Well, she might have both going. Because the first one does look more like a cigarette. But the one in the bottom panels... Uh, yeah, you're right. That is, at the very least, a hand-rolled cigarette. It is possible that she is smoking tobacco in conjunction with a spliff there. Which, as several, I'm going to call them hientists, have pointed out to me, increases the high like 20%, dude. But yeah, good point. Well, if you scroll up to the top of that page and look at the expressions on everyone's face, I, I think it's pretty clear that, that that monster has made its way around the table at least a couple times. <laughs> wow. Huh? Gosh, you're not wrong. Do you think they left a butler in on the cipher? <laughs> yeah, he's like, why am I holding this teapot, man? What is, what is even in this thing? I didn't notice that. I was too busy being struck by the palatial Kane estate, which I don't think we have seen before. I thought before they were staying in an apartment in the city, which seemed nice, but not opulent like that. Yeah, I guess you got to kill a lot of people to (laughs) afford a How's that fancy. Yeah, it reminds me of like a English countryside estate and seeing like the butler serving them tea and six people around a table. I've been watching a fair amount of like Agatha Christie movies and was just like, I wonder which of them is the murderer. (laughs) Yep. I wonder if that might be why Jericho decided he was so keen to move out. He's like, I just can't have another weekend here where she invites six people over. One of them turns out to be a killer. Mm -hmm. It's just getting old. That's why I'd like to stay outside and leave my paintings out in the rain. Yeah, that and just for the dramatic uh, effect. Have you ever seen a movie called The Beast Must Die? That does not ring a bell. Oh man, you should check it out. Because I saw it recently. It's an early 70s movie. But it's basically like a Agatha Christie type murder mystery where a group of six people are invited to a palatial English countryside estate for the weekend. But it's a mix between that and the most dangerous game, because the guy who invited them there is like a world-class hunter who has decided he wants to hunt the most dangerous game. Ah. Which some movies would have you believe is man, but this movie posits is a werewolf. We talked about this on the last episode. Did we? Yeah. Well, it's a hell of a movie. (laughs) I, I just love the idea of just, like, most dangerous game. Man? No, no, no. Werewolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty great. Just really ups the ante. I like it. Plus, there's a great break towards the end of it that's called the werewolf break, where just, like, weird music starts playing and they show a placard that says, now it's time for the werewolf break. Really? 
Uh-huh. Have you guessed who the werewolf is? And then it focuses on each character. It's awesome. It sounds like a lot of fun. Man, you know what? I cannot stop watching. That was something you recommended is that show where um, people get dropped off in the middle of the Arctic and have to like live off the land. Yeah, alone, right? Yeah, I watched like, gosh, I don't know, like 10 episodes of that over the weekend. It's surprisingly engaging, and I did find myself thinking really, really dumb thoughts like, well, what I would do is this. <laughs> it's like, no, what I would do is curl up in the fucking fetal position and 10 minutes later fucking hit that panic button on the radio and come get picked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I asked Tina, I was like, hey, how long do you think I'd last? And she just looks at me and holds up one finger. <laughs> <laughs> Which finger was it, Corey? <laughs> <laughs> hey, take your pick. No, one day, maximum. Man, that looks not fun. There were a couple of instances in this comic where I was a little bit confused as to exactly what was happening with Jericho. In what sense? Well, mostly in terms of his powers. There's the scene where he tries to take over the body of Gorgon and is instantly rebuffed. And... I wasn't sure if that was because Gorgon was already being controlled by the Freshmaker, or if he wasn't able to make eye contact, because those aren't eyes, those are in fact little gray puckered buttholes. Or what? Did you have a strong sense of why he wasn't able to take over Gorgon? Yeah, I thought it was it was pretty clear that it was because Mento's powers were far too strong and Mento who was controlling all the guys. I guess that probably is the most likely explanation, although there could also be an argument made for, like, how do you make eye contact with a guy whose eyeball glares turn you into stone? So it's like kind of a battle between the uh, warnings against the evil of eye contact between Jericho and the butthole-eyed snake man. Well, there's all the little snakes. Do they have eyes? I mean, yeah. I guess he could have tried to get into one of the, like, just one of the snakes on Gorgon's head. <laughs> That'd mess with him. And then just, like, bite his face with one of those? Yeah, that'd be frustrating. Start smacking himself in the face. Ah, oh, missed opportunity, Jericho. Ugh, badly played, sir. The other one, which I found kind of a confusing moment, is on the second page, where we see Aqualad rescuing the Teen Titans. Like when he's doing the thing where he swims to the surface and then, uh, you know, swims back down and baby birds oxygen into their mouths. Mm -hmm. The first panel you see him encountering Jericho, it looks like Jericho is using his powers on Aqualad. At first, I thought that was just like air bubbles, but that is an outline of Jericho's head. So is Jericho taking over Aqualad and then Jericho is the one doing that stuff? No. Then what's going on there? Yeah, it is weird because the the way that they draw those outlines is like the same way he does when he does his contact thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think those are just like motion lines or? That was my assumption, yeah. It is weird because it's a very specific visual effect that almost always means that's Jericho using his powers. So I don't know if maybe Jericho is the one doing the baby birding of the oxygen and then when that power wears off, then Aqualad comes and summons the whales, but Jericho didn't know how to do that. Gosh, it could be, actually, because on that same page, on page two, doesn't it look like Aqualad's, like, hit his head and got knocked out? 
It does. And we've seen before that Jericho can somehow make eye contact with unconscious people and take over their bodies. So I was curious about that. And if so, it really is to Jericho's benefit. It speaks well of him that he just lets everyone assume that it was Aqualad doing all the rescuing. Because you see that Donna's just like, wow, look at Aqualad go. He's doing such a great job. And uh, I mean, he does do a great job. And it's he who decides to call for the whales after Marv Wolfman makes the point like, most people can't control whales with their minds, but Aqualad can. He can even make them act like puppies playing fetch. <laughs> uh-huh. It sounded like Wolfman was kind of bitter about his inability to telepathically control whales. Well, I mean, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of times where I'll just go to the ocean, see a fucking spout, put my fingers to my temples, and then like a minute later, I'll just be like, this is bullshit. Or like, uh, did you ever, you know, growing up on the, the seacoast or near the seacoast in New England, go on those whale watch boats? Mm hmm. And, like, you just spend so much time being like, where are the damn whales, man? <laughs> yeah, that would be an instance, right? Where you're like, all right, let's give these people a show. That would be really fun. Yeah. Man, yeah, telepathically controlling, or not controlling, but telepathically conversing and perhaps asking favors of whales would be pretty tops. Yeah, that's a good ability. That's one of the many reasons why Aqualad is the best. Man, I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't even uh, notice that that was potentially probably Jericho. Yeah, I'm not. I'm honestly not sure if it was a miscue with the art department that made it look that way. Yeah, I don't know if Wolfman at this point was working with a full script with Barreto, or that was something that Barreto put in that maybe Wolfman didn't notice. But I thought it was interesting and at least worth speculating on, especially in an issue where, frankly, there's not a ton going on. Yeah. Speaking of speculations regarding Aqualad, Aqualad has a pretty decent joke in this issue, I thought, that did lead to some questions for me. Hmm. After Aqualad, or possibly Aqualad and Jericho, have rescued all of the Titans from the Hudson River, we see that he's feeling pretty gross because he's covered with uh, river slime. Mm -hmm. And he strikes kind of a funny pose and says, Right, and now, if you don't mind, I'd like to borrow a room and some clothing. And before Gar says anything, I don't want Coriander's old wardrobe. I mean, she's so much taller than me. That's pretty well constructed. I like him being like, yeah, Beast Boy's always trying to get me to dress up like Starfire. Which, I can see Beast Boy always trying to get everyone to dress up like Starfire and them being sick of it. But I like him turning it to... I mean, she's just taller than me, so it wouldn't work. I mean, I think that kind of maintains the joke, but also kind of steers it away from the gay panic that you would sometimes get with a joke like that, especially in this era. Yeah, and he's killing the room with that joke, too. Like, both Wendy and Flasher are, like, in the process of slapping their knees with laughter. And Wally is, in particular, is absolutely doubled over in laughter. He cannot get enough of that fucking joke. Mm-hmm. What's funny, though, is he says he needs to go get a change of clothes. It's implied that he doesn't have his old clothes there. But when he changes, he changes into an outfit identical to the one that he had been wearing. So which of the Titans do you think is cosplaying as Aqualad on a regular basis? 
Uh, I'd say probably Beast Boy. Yeah. Yeah. I think he thinks, like, Aqualad is pretty awesome. I mean, I think all of them think that Aqualad's pretty awesome. Well, who who do you think? You think everybody's cosplaying as Aqualad? I think they have to take turns to see who gets to be Aqualad on uh, any given day. It's probably like next to the chore wheel, they have an Aqualad wheel. And uh, Aqualad would probably be at least a little bit creeped out to learn about it. I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah, are you kidding? That would be weird. Okay, note to self, do not let Cory see the Cory wheel in our house. <laughs> <laughs> have to grow a soul patch and then... <laughs> You don't still have one of those, Corey, do you? Well, I have the beard. It's part of it. Okay, yeah, that's different, though. Yeah, that was a long time ago, (laughs) and everybody made bad choices about facial hair. It was a different time when everyone's facial hair choices were terrible. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually grown a, uh, a quarantine mustache that I'm overall okay with, but the other day I found an old pair of blue blockers, and I put those on, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, oh, can't do that combo! No? No, it is a decidedly disturbing look. Well, there's other things to talk about, but I suspect most of them are going to come up in the minutia. Was there anything you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? No, I think you're right. It'll all come out in the wash. Excellent. That's not the right metaphor. Eh, close enough. <laughs> Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what category do you feel like starting off with? You know, normally... This category is is one where I have to to limit myself, but I found it a little more challenging in this issue, so maybe we'll start with sartorially speaking. All right. Sartorially speaking, which fashion choices in this issue did you find most worthy of note? I thought Mrs. Wilson's yellow kind of goldenrod, maybe colored blouse, which I have to assume is very shiny material, and her her black skirt and... uh, Skinny belt was a very smart look, very 80s. Thought that was nice. I think that's a nice look. Uh, I also think that Amber's, I think, possible pantsuit is a pretty nice look. It's a summer pantsuit, I guess. Maybe a, a jumper. How how do you how do you classify that? I'm still processing summer pantsuit. <laughs> um, yeah. It's a thing that I think I just invented with my mouth rather than my mind. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, like uh, what do you call those? Uh, like coveralls, like that mechanics wear, but like short sleeved and lavender. Is that a pantsuit? Is a pantsuit one piece or is it? It isn't generally. I, I misspoke. It, it's definitely not a pantsuit. It's more like, I guess, maybe like a short sleeved jumpsuit. Possibly a jumper, but not what you would call a jumper in England, because that's a sweater, mm-hmm. which is one of the few things that isn't a biscuit, as near as I can tell. Yeah, you wear it with your trainers. Right, right, when you take a lorry to the loo. All right. Yeah, so it's one of those. Well, just let the audience sort that out. Okay. I think the major new outfit that we get is Behemoth's outfit. Did you have any thoughts on that? I did note his 
I don't know if they would be characterized as gauntlets properly, but the big metal things around his wrists and his boots are matching, which is pretty cool. Yeah, his boots look like moon boot type material. I, I think the design is like that. I believe they're probably supposed to be metal, probably some kind of a bronze or copper metal. And his wristbands are supposed to be the same. But the fact that I thought that his boots were moon boots made me wonder if he was wearing like inflatable armbands. Like, are those just water wings that are around his wrists? Mm. No, I, I assume that's all supposed to be metal. Open them smash. I think you're probably right. It does have kind of a sheen to it, but uh, I like the idea that he might be wearing water wings. The rest of his outfit is just... I don't know to what extent it is sculpted to make him look more egg-shaped, and like you said, like he maybe doesn't have a neck, and to what extent his body has maybe morphed a little bit to be more egg-shaped. But it looks like he's kind of just an armored egg with a gold belt that has a design that just kind of looks like a spatchcocked squirrel for a belt buckle. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, doesn't it? Yeah. Or like a flying squirrel in flight. Oh, yeah. That would be a less, less disturbing. <laughs> yeah. And it looks like he has that gold belt that has been placed over maybe like a giant ace of spades that the lower half of his egg-shaped swimsuit is that then has like a... I don't know, like a brown thong that is worn over it as the, not underpants, but overpants that superhero costumes sometimes get. Mm -hmm. there's, there's some weird crotch shit going on with this guy, basically. Yeah, I think that it was a nod to his uh, former sporting life. Forget the name of the, the thing that the sumo wrestlers wear that they have to grab, but that's like a... Oh, right. You know, that kind of like loincloth looking thing, but with a really, like a heavy cumberbund kind of waistband thing that they grab onto yeah i wonder if they're allowed to have a spatchcocked squirrel as part of that loincloth because it seems like that might give them an advantage in battle very off-putting yeah they might want to look into that that's today's helpful sumo tip put a dead squirrel on that belt thing well was there any other fashion you wanted to talk about that was what i had essentially was those two did you find other bits no, that was pretty much it. Most of the other costumes we've seen before, there seems to be a bit more inconsistency in Harpy with an eyes costume, where there are a couple of panels where it looks like she's maybe just wearing pasties instead of whatever elaborate, I don't know, metal-strapped floating bikini top she has on in the last issue. But... That is something that I think we'll see happen with Eduardo Barreto's art, maybe more than other artists on the title. A little bit more costume inconsistency. Although, again, I think overall he does an amazing job in this issue, and he and Romeo Tangal uh, continue to work really, really well together. Yeah, I agree. There is a funny panel on, I think, page 25. It's the one where Mento uses his mind's eye to see Aqualad and Harpy with an eye flying to home base. Aqualad's kind of flying piggyback on her, but mm -hmm. the, the way that that panel is structured, it looks like he has lost his handholds and has grabbed one of her magically flying away bra strap things <laughs> to avoid falling off. Oh, totally. It's like, oh man, she must be so annoyed. Yeah, but I mean, they are just sticking up like the handlebars of a lowrider bicycle, so I mean... <laughs> it's a logical thing to grab onto if you're worried you're going to fall, but yeah, probably uncomfortable. 
Who did you have as your president of the drama club in this issue? Which character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion? In this one, I had Beast Boy, because he wore a surprising range of expressions on his face across a pretty, you know, short period of time. Mm-hmm. And really registers them perhaps a little more strongly than necessary. So, for example, on page six, when he realizes that Pterodon can talk, he's extremely surprised. Mm-hmm. And then later on uh, page nine, where he's lamenting his uh, stepdad's state of affairs, he's crying and also doing like the, the why like gesture with his hands. Yeah, it, it's a surprising range of emotions and also a somewhat inconsistent one where you do see those super highs and super lows, but not necessarily where you would expect them, because there is also like a three page chunk where he thinks his teammates are probably dead. And his only reaction to that is to say, I'm just not going to think about that, because if I did, I'd probably be pretty upset about it. I know. And then immediately after that, oh, my God, you can talk. And then when the teammates do show up, he's like, you're alive. It's like, wait, so you really didn't think they were alive? And your only reaction was just like, eh, I'll think about that later. Yeah, pretty all over the place emotionally. You know, ups, downs, smiles, frowns, the whole gamut. Yeah. I decided to go with Steve Dayton as my president of the drama club, although I did have Aqualad as a backup for delivering a fairly long, heartfelt monologue to his dead girlfriend in the middle of battle. I think that at least has to get him a, a little uh, tip of the hat in terms of being dramatic. But Steve Dayton is just chewing that scenery like it is exquisitely crafted marzipan. <laughs> like, every time you see him, he is just making a meal out of the landscape. Also, the fact that grown-up Bat Boy knows so much about what happened in Swamp Thing number 50 that he is able to, like, relate almost verbatim from the issue to the Teen Titans what happened there speaks to the fact that Steve Dayton is pretty much just constantly monologuing while mm -hmm. he has these people captive. Also, related to that is the fact that he says that during the events of Swamp Thing 50, he apparently became paralyzed from the waist down because of his mind overheating or whatever from all of the grand cosmic knowledge that got dumped into him. And in that issue, there is really no indication of that. We see that certainly it has overheated his mind, but it once again brings up the idea that he is creating a story and talking about it as though he is unable to use his legs. But I'm pretty sure that is just a fashion wheelchair that he is using, which I think is very distasteful and is also an indication of him being very, very overly dramatic. Oh, wow. Yeah, because he just wants to be Niles Calder so bad. Yeah, he wants to be Niles Calder, Professor X. Dr. Professor. <laughs> Dr. Professor Longhair. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we all want to be Professor Longhair. Oh. Well, all the boys call me Dr. Professor Longhair. The girls all call me a little old loving man. But yeah, uh, I think Steve Dayton just is like, well, when you lead Doom Patrol or, you know, the X-Men or apparently now the hybrid. 
you have to be in a wheelchair, so I'm in a wheelchair, and I'll create this long monologue about why that's the case, but that's just because I think that's what I should do right now. No, I think that's a fair call. Well, Corey, I think we should probably take this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, did you want to focus on? Other than Bozo, my favorite comic... (laughs) Holy shit, did I miss a Bozo? Corey, there is a straight-up Natty B in this issue. Oh my gosh, I missed it. Page 16. What? As Beast Boy is mixing it up with grown-up Bat Boy and puckered asshole eyeballs, (laughs) he says... Uh, guys, maybe we're almost on the same side, but that doesn't mean we're letting you go free. There's still that little matter of the T-Jet you bozos destroyed. What? Oh, shit, man. You're right. I missed it completely. Yeah, in addition to the Natty B, we have a Mebby count of four in this issue, and I believe you are going to bring up another... Wolfman mainstay of insults, which is? I was going to refer to uh, Cyborg referring to Beast Boy as a turkey. Mm-hmm. He's really trotting out all the hits in this one. Mm-hmm. And we also have a gruesome count of two when it's being used as a kind of pejorative nickname for the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And we also have... Outside of the Natty B, probably my favorite insult, which is delivered by the Freshmaker. Don't just gawk at me like the idiots you are. (laughs) Go. Damn. He is the worst boss. Yeah. The hybrid needs a strong HR manager so badly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know HR is there to protect Steve Dayton in this case and not the employees, but there does need to be some kind of a mediating process there yep he's a real jerk but that's a good zinger nonetheless indeed man i can't believe i missed that uh natty b especially it being a plural i know well yeah just keep keep your eyes peeled for bozos as we always say at the end of every episode (laughs) (laughs) yep were you able to find a timestamp in this issue I did. It's on page 20 when Beast Boy refers to the Roger Corman movie Chopping Mall and even uses the uh, like tagline, I guess, from the movie. Chopping Mall, where shopping will cost you an arm and a leg. And that is a production that has come up on this podcast before in one of the Defenders issues because it was co-written, the film Chopping Mall, by Steve Mitchell who has been an inker on the Defenders and has worked with Marv Wolfman before, which is probably why Wolfman decided to include that nod to the movie. Ah. Yeah, Mitchell was the inker in the issue that saw the debut of the Teen Titans, DC Presents number 26. Not in the Teen Titans story, but Wolfman also wrote the Green Lantern story that was in that issue, and that was inked by Steve Mitchell. Who, yeah, then went on to co-write Chopping Mall, which this issue says is a Roger Corman production. It was not. 
it was actually produced by Julia Corman, Roger Corman's wife, and her production company. But yeah, it was uh, co-written by Steve Mitchell and a guy named Jim Wynorski, who also was the director of The Return of Swamp Thing, which is really, really shitty. Mm -hmm. And he also went on to direct more than 150 other movies. Wow. Most of them softcore porn movie parodies. Wow. Maybe not most of them, but a lot of them. He went on to direct such titles as the Blair Witch Project knockoff, the Bear Wench Project. (laughs) Oh, no. The Cloverfield knockoff, Cleavage Field. The Paranormal Activities parody, Paranockers Activities. Oh, my God. And, of course, The Witches of Brestwick. Which is especially bad because that one only works written and not spoken. So that's Jim Wynorski, although he did also co-write Beastmaster 2, so I guess it's not all bad. <laughs> I don't know, man. That, that, is, um, that is something. Those are things. Yeah, so yeah, I had the same timestamp, the mention of Chopping Mall, which... Seems like it should be a slasher movie, but it's actually about killer robots in a shopping mall. Really more science fiction than conventional slasher movie, but actually not that bad. Hmm. Yeah, I've never seen it. And just on that panel, too, this gets back to that thing that we often see of Beast Boy, like, trying to make a joke and having it just be, like, it shows his understanding of things being really out of whack. And the reason I say that is because as he's jumping in to attack Gorgon, he says, obviously, this is a job for a tabby cat of doom, um, which he thinks would be a good name for a movie that would go a chopping mall. Yeah. And it doesn't. No, he's making references that he really clearly does not understand, which is perhaps also why he thinks Chopping Mall is a Roger Corman production and not a Julia Corman production. Mm hmm. But perhaps accurate that it would be considered a gross-out movie? Yeah, I think that would probably be safe to say. But it, it is nice to see Wolfman giving a shout-out to a old uh, collaborator of his. So, that's nice. Indeed. So, Corey, we talked a little bit about the artwork in this issue, but what was your favorite panel? I had a couple of choices, as usual. But I think my favorite is one that we already touched on a little bit. And it's on page 26. I titled it Joe's Birthday Party because though he's not holding his cup of tea or coffee, Jericho is staring pensively off into the middle distance, possibly very high on marijuana or whatever's in his mom's spliff. But what cracked me up about that panel was just the intense expressions on everybody's face where Donna is deep in thought. Cyborg looks, you know, like also deep in thought but kind of pissed off beast boy just looks like he's just like man this is the best water i've ever had (laughs) it really does lend credence to your theory that that is a spliff that adeline kane is passing around in her attempt to perhaps be the cool parent (laughs) yeah I feel like that bar is lowered pretty significantly when the other parent of Jericho is the one who has repeatedly tried to murder all of your friends. But she's still really going for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a a really, really fun panel. 
I think my favorite is on page two, and it is really a full page spread, but that is broken up into like maybe as many as 12 panels, but are all arcing out from a single image, kind of like a stained glass window. And it's like a stained glass window of Aqualad or possibly Jericho and Aqualad, as we've discussed, just being super awesome. And uh, it kind of he's baby birding oxygen into Cyborg's lungs. But it does kind of look like it's just a giant stained glass window surrounding the topic of Aqualad and Cyborg making out a little, which (laughs) I think is pretty rad. And yeah, fuck, I'd go to that church. Yeah, that's an amazing page, and the layout is really cool. It mm-hmm. does have a stained glass look, like you said. The bottom part almost has like a shell shape to it. Mm-hmm. So, very in with the aquatic theme. Yeah, it, it's just very, very nicely done. And that page also has, and that page and the following one have a ton of fun sound effects which this is maybe the first issue since we've gotten rid of that category where I kind of regret it because there's a shh, there's a ploosh, there's a ranch, there's a clank, there's a cree, there's a sloosh, there's a cranch. I love that underwater the noise crunch goes cranch (laughs) instead of crunch. Yeah, I think cranch is the snack food item that is uh, cran raisins mixed with ranch. Oh, bye. Hey, I don't think it sounds good either. Don't blame me. Blame the parent company that owns both Hidden Valley and Ocean Spray. Why? Why? Oh, that sounds really bad. It sounds bad to me, too, but when Wonder Girl is drowning, that's all she can think about. It's how badly she wants some of that cranch. Ugh. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who is your Aqualad, and who was your Beast Boy? Yeah, perhaps not super surprisingly, I had for my Aqualad Aqualad, because ostensibly he rescues the whole team from drowning. Mm -hmm. He basically makes peace with in a way that motivates him the the death of Tula and he bravely pursues his enemies you know which may or may not wind up being a tactical move that was real good but it showed a lot of bravery and initiative to piggyback a a ride back to uh, the Freshmakers hideout and I think for those reasons he's the best yeah he is in a sense taking the Teen Titans signature tactic of heedlessly walking into a trap to its logical extension, perhaps, of purposefully being taken hostage by the bad guys in a way that, I don't know, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't, but you're right, it is very brave of him. Mm -hmm. I also had Aqualad as my choice, although there is a little bit of leeway in there where Jericho is making a little bit of a case for himself if it was him doing the majority of the baby birding oxygen. I I keep saying that, actually. Is baby birding, is that something people understand? It's like the way a mother bird would store food in its mouth to feed to her baby birds. So is Aqualad, or possibly Jericho as Aqualad, storing the 
food of oxygen in his mouth and taking it down to his teammates. Yeah, no, I feel like I understand that, but I don't know if that's just because that's something that I've heard you say over the years a lot. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's common parlance. I think generally it would be a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Right. That would, I guess, be another way to put that. But uh, baby birding sounds pretty cute, too. It is significantly less cute in the way that I first encountered that phrase, which is, over the years, I've hung out with some pretty heavy drinkers, both socially and professionally, as a bartender. Mm -hmm. And the way that I first encountered the concept of baby birding was that it was what a group of people that I know would call it when one of them would be refused service in a bar, either because they had been kicked out for previous behavior or because they were too drunk to be served. And so another member of their party would order a shot, store it in their mouth, go outside, and feed the alcohol to their drunk friend that way. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. People. Yeah, I've said it before, if it wasn't for geese, people would be the worst. But yes, I agree, Aqualad is also my choice as the best Teen Titan in this issue. I have him as my Aqualad. Conversely, who did you have as your Beast Boy? So this one may be a little controversial, or at least called into question, uh, due to your read on the happenings of page two, because... It does seem really possible that that was Joe who saved everybody. Mm -hmm. But assuming it's not, and because I didn't notice that, I had him because I thought he made a grave tactical error in his attempt to do his mind meld body takeover thing with the Gorgon for several reasons. One, because like everybody in that room after the conversation that they've had with with Harpy with an eye, with Gorgon, and with uh, Pterodon, no that they are all at least partially, if not completely, controlled by Steve Dayton's mind. Mm -hmm. And so the attempt to jump in there with somebody whose mental, or I don't even know what the word is, magical capabilities via his mind are far more powerful than yours, just really has the potential to blow up in your face. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And yeah, like you said, for a lot of reasons, it seems like that's at least a questionable move. Whether you want to be making eye contact with somebody whose eye contact turns you to stone is certainly debatable. Whether those are even eyeballs or, in fact, tiny buttholes that are on Gorgon's face, or whether Gorgon is already being mind-controlled, you're right. That is a very questionable move on Jericho's part. I didn't have him as my choice because there is that ambiguity as to whether or not he rescued everyone. And also, the Flash made some pretty dumb decisions in this issue that got him into a fair amount of trouble, and they seemed to be based on his overconfidence and him forgetting that he's not as fast as he used to be. Mm -hmm. He has this tremendous power of super speed, and in this issue, he kind of, it seems like, just uses it to fall off a balcony and get turned to stone. Yep. It comes up in a couple occasions where he's just like, oh, shit, that's right. I'm not as fast as I used to be. I got to be careful of that. And I think it's especially highlighted because in both of those instances, it's preceded by him saying, I think I'm the person to handle this. And then just fucking up almost immediately and really not 
contributing anything that worthwhile, it seems like. Mm -hmm. I liked his attitude in this. He didn't say or do anything particularly shitty to anyone else, which is a step in the right direction for Wally West in the pages of New Teen Titans at any rate. But uh, as a team member, he did a pretty bad job. Yep. He was my runner-up for bad job. Did you have a runner-up for uh, Aqualad? For Aqualad, I think I had Jericho as potentially my runner-up. I had for mine um, Cyborg, because he floats the radical idea of coming up with a plan before they, <laughs> they go rescue Aqualad. I don't know, man. It's not the Titans' way. I, I guess I'm just a stickler for tradition. Mm-hmm. Blunder into traps. If it ain't broke, break it. <laughs> yeah, that's how that goes. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Wumshpoo doesn't exactly roll off the tongue the way that Wapoo does, but we see that Aqualad is appearing in this issue and we know what he's up to. So, in the year of our Lord, 1988, as we do go by the date of the reprints, and the month of our Lord, January... What is the world's richest and therefore most trustworthy man, Mr. Jupiter, probably up to? Wumjpoo! Welp, Mr. Jupiter is about to get even richer because companies under his control, starting in January 1988, brought to the U.S. market fluoxetine hydrochloride, which, Hmm. known by its commercial name, is Prozac. Oh! It took a couple years, and then it went to become, you know, one of the most prescribed drugs around. I think by 2017, there was something like 21 million prescriptions written for it, and was one of the first serotonin reuptake inhibitors to reach such a big market. It was invented long before that, and then, you know, I think mid-70s by uh, Eli Lilly. But yeah, it was uh, January of 88 when it first hit the, the U.S. market on large scale. And uh, Mr. Jupiter behind that, pulling the strings, hmm. lining his pockets. Good to know. Well, that was one thing that Mr. Jupiter was probably up to in January of 1988. But it was a busy month for the world's richest and therefore most trustworthy man. In addition to introducing Prozac to U.S. markets... He was also settling a personal vendetta, or at least trying to. See, a couple of years before this, Mr. Jupiter had seen the movie They Live, starring Rowdy Roddy Piper, and he took some umbrage with the film's decidedly anti-capitalist message, as he perceived it. It was about aliens coming down and using their subliminal messages to control people by making them into consumers rather than free thinkers and he's like this seems like this is taking a shot at capitalism i want to take down the people behind this movie now by this time that film's director john carpenter already had a pretty well established film career so he decided to go after the lower hanging fruit of rowdy roddy piper's burgeoning film career he saw that rowdy roddy piper in january of 1988 had a film being released called Hell Comes to Frogtown. <laughs> and he thought to himself, that is going to be huge for him. <laughs> That's going to be a nationwide mega hit. 
all of his wrestling fans are going to go see that movie. I've got to do what I can to stop that. So in an act of counter-programming, Mr. Jupiter got in touch with his fellow megalomaniacal billionaire, Vincent Kennedy McMahon of the WWF, and they concocted an idea called the Royal Rumble, a huge wrestling event in which it's a 30-man battle royale in which the last man standing in the ring after throwing everyone else over the top rope gets to be crowned the winner. And they both thought this was just going to be a huge idea, uh, going to be a massive success, and would, more importantly, direct attention away from the mega-hit Hell Comes to Frogtown, which had been released earlier that month. People are at home watching television. They won't be out watching Rowdy Roddy Piper's movie. Now, obviously, this plan failed, and Hell Comes to Frogtown turned out to be the blockbuster event of 1988. But Mr. Jupiter still ended up coming out on top in this, because the winner of the first Royal Rumble ended up being Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who carried a big 2x4 to the ring with him, which he would attempt to hit people with, and Mr. Jupiter invested heavily in lumber that year, and sales were through the roof. <laughs> so that is what the world's richest and therefore most trustworthy man, Lauren Jupiter, was up to in January of 1988. Dang, busy indeed. Although when he saw the, uh... Boffo box office of Hell Comes to Frogtown, he probably needed to take a little bit of that Prozac himself. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Corey. I had a nice time talking with you about this comic book. Me too. Thank you. And uh, hopefully we will see you again soon. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're all up in other aspects of the social media, so you can visit us there on your Tweetor, Tumblr, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, Grinder, Netscape 2.0, etc. And hey, if you can't find us there, maybe try looking inside your heart. We'll be there, unless you've decided to install some internal air conditioning. Um, <laughs> which, don't do that. Don't do it. Yeah, yeah, it's getting shot through the stomach or heart is not going to make you more comfortable. And that's a safety tip from us to you. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. The monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show in which my wife Lisa and I take a look at Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. There's also a whole bunch of other material up there. Video reviews of classic comic books that have been doing at a pretty consistent clip. This last week was a little bit slower, but I'll try to put some extra ones up soon. There's a whole bunch of those and a bunch of other bonus audio and video material for you to check out. It is exclusively available to donors, so... 
If you become a Patreon donor, you get to check out all of that bonus material. But mostly it's just a really nice way for you to let us know that you like what we're doing and would like us to be able to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary way, a great way to do that is by leaving us a review in a place where reviews can be left. And if it's a place where reviews can't be left, just do your best. Try to leave one there anyway. Just uh, graffiti us a review on the side of a tall building. <laughs> no, that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> what could go wrong? Probably bad advice. Uh, carve our name in giant letters in the highest mountain. You know, do something like that. Mm-hmm. It's probably a bad idea and is probably, uh, I don't know, illegal and would lead to erosion. But you know what? Give it a try anyway. Maybe uh, crumple up some automobiles to form the words tighten up the defense is great. This would be if you have superpowers. Or work in a car recycling place. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how cars get recycled. Sure. Yeah, if you're one of those things, maybe you try one of those options. If you just have powers of being super considerate, then you could leave us a review on whatever uh, podcatching device or platform you're listening to the show on just uh hit a button that says review and then click upload and then uh tell the computer to enhance three times and then say tighten up the defense they always give me the best advice as it relates to graffiti and or technology five stars so thanks in advance for doing that Or if you have already done it and are listening to the show again, thank you in the regular manner for doing that. In summation, thanks. And as we always say, keep your eyes peeled for bozos. Yep. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye. tell you you can't you you can't bet 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 i am saying words but i don't know what they mean anymore no more of that bubble water for you dude (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah man this caffeinated bubble water i accidentally bought is doing (laughs) me no favors